from Hollywood, I'm Martin Grove, welcoming you to our Screen Dollars podcast, Box Office Autopsy. In today's conversation, we'll look at the marketplace and analyze how things are going and where they're going. Joining me on the line now is Screen Dollars box office guru, Dick Walsh. Between Dick's career in exhibition, including as film chairman of AMC Entertainment, and my own days talking about movies on CNN, Entertainment Tonight, and as a Hollywood Reporter columnist, we've logged nearly a hundred years in Hollywood. That doesn't mean we're always right, but we've definitely got a few opinions to share. Christmas weekend for Sony Marvel and Spider-Man No Way Home. It cracked a billion dollars globally, and uh, that, of course, makes it the biggest film of the year. And uh, what more can we say except it's a box office uh, powerhouse? No, it wasn't. It wasn't too long ago. I believe 2018. Reed Hastings, the founder of Netflix, said there would never be a worldwide billion-dollar grossing picture again because of the growth of Netflix. Wow. Well, Reed, well, Reed uh, I'm sorry. Uh, this is the fourth one since you've made that statement. So uh, uh, you make the right picture, people are going to go out to see it. Well, you know, Dick, it is just, I think, poetic justice that Sony is the only big studio that has not launched its own streaming service, and it outperformed the Hollywood pack in 2021. Uh, besides the, the global success of Spidey, there were four films domestically that did over $180 million dollars. Two of those are from Sony Marvel. The first one, of course, is Spider-Man No Way Home. Domestically, it did a little over $467 million. And the third ranking film in that small group of four is Sony Marvel's Venom, Let There Be Carnage. It was number three, with a little over $212 million. So Sony really did very well without worrying about in-house streaming. Uh, this past weekend, Christmas weekend, of course, for the three-day, uh, the normal uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday weekend, Spidey did $81.5 million. For five days, it did almost $139 million. And, uh, you know, this, this picture is something I think we're still going to be talking about, you know, in the weeks ahead. Well, and the, the other thing that happened was Friday, unfortunately, was Christmas Eve, and as you know, Christmas Eve does not do very well at the box office. People stay home. They're getting ready for Christmas Day. Many theaters across the country closed at 8 o'clock in the evening to let their staffs go home and enjoy Christmas. And we still did these kinds of numbers. Yes, and Dick, I want to ask you as a longtime exhibitor, uh, I have heard that when Christmas Day itself falls on a Saturday, exhibitors are not thrilled about that. 
No, it's uh, Christmas Day is going to be one of the biggest days of the year, regardless of what day of the week it falls on. So why did it have to pick Saturday, a great day? Uh, here's an odd note. The last time Christmas Eve was on a Friday was in 1999. So it had been over 20 years wow. with, with leap years and all of that. And we just couldn't avoid it this year. But uh, we still did this well, despite the fact that we lost uh, one of the days. And as you say, we technically lost Christmas Day because it fell on a Saturday. That's right. But look, uh, nonetheless, uh, Spider-Man prevailed. Now, in the case of uh, the Matrix Resurrections, which opened from Warner Brothers and uh, Village Roadshow, uh, it did not live up to expectations for a while. Uh, uh, exhibitors and uh, media pundits were talking about maybe this was a 40 to $50 million hour, uh, range opening, but uh, uh, very uh, disappointing. Uh, it opened in third place to only $12 million for three days. Uh, for the five-day uh, longer weekend, it did $22.5 million. Uh, it just didn't live up to what uh, the Hollywood handicappers thought was going to happen. Now, here's a scene, and uh, we're going to talk about it, but here's a scene first for us to listen to, uh, and it plays well. Uh, you can't see the fight, but it does play well. And, uh, and, and, and by the way, if you uh, happen to be a fan of the Jefferson Airplane from the 60s, uh, here's Grace Slick and the Jefferson Airplane. Uh, that music is uh, somebody to love, and that's a, a, a big part of this scene. So let's give a listen. We'll talk about it on the other side. Thomas? You seem particularly triggered right now. Can you tell me what happened? I've had dreams that weren't just dreams. Am I crazy? We don't use that word in here. Hi. Have we met? One pill makes you larger and one pill makes you small And the ones that mother gives you Don't do anything at all Go ask Alice When she's ten feet tall Time to fly If you want the truth, Neo, you're going to have to follow me. And you know you to the only thing that matters to you is still here. I know it's why you're still fighting and why you will never give up. Well, The Matrix Resurrections, it uh, didn't really go anywhere. Uh, was targeted to an older audience competing with itself on HBO Max, and Dick had had miserable uh, scores on Rotten Tomatoes, 66% with the critics and 64% with audiences. Do you think the HBO Max competition hurt? I mean, it's the last one of Warner's films this year that has that uh, day and date uh, opening built into its release. 
Yeah, I, I most certainly do think it hurt. Uh, I think Exhibition wants Warner Brothers to remember this as they end the year. Once again, this is a picture that could have played over the Thanksgiving weekend, but they decide to go head-to-head with Spider-Man. Uh, and they were competing for IMAX screens. Uh, they were getting uh, half the show times uh, at Thanksgiving. Uh, they would have dominated the IMAX screens. So once again, the studios spend all this money on making a picture and perhaps make the biggest misstep by opening it at the wrong time. Well, you know, the other thought that I have about it is it's been 18 years since the last film in the uh, Matrix uh, franchise, and uh, that is a long time, and and certainly uh, if you were, uh, you know, a moviegoer uh, loving this film uh, uh, 18 years ago, uh, well, I guess you're 18 years older now, and uh, maybe falling into that group that's a little reluctant to to go to the uh, uh, cinemas, or at least uh, that's what the doomsayers tell us well and this is another underperforming r-rated picture uh and this may be the fourth or fifth one in a row and we just wonder is that demographic staying home doing hbo max not going to the movie theater but then you've got spider-man setting records so what's going on well but spider-man of course is is pg-13 now you pointed out the r rating for for matrix resurrections uh if they had gone pg-13 and you could have gotten that you know under 17 audience uh, to come in uh that's the group that is doing uh, all the movie going right now maybe that would have helped it but but uh i i guess in this business you only get one shot and uh they have struck out but uh, uh a high note uh, was hit at the box office by sing 2 from universal and illumination entertainment it is of course animated family comedy adventure it opened in second place it did almost 24 million dollars for three days uh, and for the five-day period it hit 41 million which was even slightly better than the 40 million <laughs> that hollywood handicappers uh, thought was uh, was ahead of it so uh so this was really uh, really good and i want to ask you dick a million six of that uh, 41 million total came from previews of the film that Universal held over Thanksgiving. And it seems to me that that got word of mouth going very well. Absolutely. Uh, It's it's an old uh, uh, exhibition theatrical move where a picture will open uh, two weeks ahead of time, a month ahead of time, on a Saturday night, a couple of show times, and uh, hadn't been done in, I want to say, 10 years, and they dusted that trick off, and they did it on the Thanksgiving weekend, and it had to pay dividends. There's no doubt about it. Well, it is definitely a box office success, and uh, and certainly uh, th- this nice, rich movie-going period between Christmas and New Year's, uh, we we should see some good sing to business. Now, coming back to the uh, minus side of the openings, uh, Disney and Twentieth have an action adventure called The Kingsman. It's a prequel to the very successful uh, franchise Kingsman, uh, the last Kingsman film, The Golden. Circle opened in uh, 2017. Uh, it wound up doing about $411 million worldwide. This one uh, opened very poorly in fourth place to a 
not quite six and a half million dollars for three days and about ten million dollars for five days um, it's an R-rated period piece drama uh, it, it had miserable reviews 43 percent on Rotten Tomatoes word of mouth isn't very good it's only 76 percent audience score on Rotten Tomatoes uh, the only thing I can say for it Dick is at least it isn't streaming a day and date but uh, what, what do you think happened here well uh Clearly, the R rating on this one, uh, the previous ones were not R rated. Uh, we have a tendency to believe that uh, the difference between an R rated and a PG 13 picture can mean as much as 20 to 30 percent higher in gross if you take the PG 13. You just open it up to that much more of an audience. It's a PG 13 time of year. And uh, why this picture had to be R-rated, particularly since Disney is standing in the background watching all this happen, uh, is is very questionable why why something like this would happen. And uh, I do think the picture is going to hold up over this Christmas week and will continue to be third or fourth. Uh, It may even... God forbid, pull ahead of Matrix on weekdays during this week. Well, that would be something that we would definitely talk about on Box Office Autopsy next week. And that would be, uh, that'd be I think, big news. But, uh, you know, it is, of course, a film that Disney inherited from its uh, uh, acquisition a few years ago of 20th Century Fox. So uh, so uh, the, the uh, origins of it, uh, uh, you know, which have perhaps built in some flaws uh, were, were from 20th Century Fox, not from Disney. And, and among those flaws, I think, is the period piece uh, setting. It, it, it goes back to the uh, World War I uh, period, and uh, we're finding that audiences today don't seem to like period pieces. I, I recall not too long ago we were talking about Ridley Scott's movie uh, The Last Duel, uh, uh, which also came out of the uh, 20th Century Fox uh, acquisition that Disney made, and uh, and that did, of course, very poorly, and that was uh, set several centuries ago, uh, but uh, uh, period pieces uh, don't seem to be what uh, what people want today, but, but look, looking ahead to the new year, I think I see a few films on the horizon that very definitely are what people want, and the first one of those is coming to us for the next big holiday after New Year's, which is Martin Luther King uh, junior birthday weekend uh, uh, that begins Friday uh, the 14th of January, the film, and I know you know what I'm going to say before I say it, the film is Scream, the reboot of Scream from Paramount and Spyglass Entertainment. It is an R-rated film, but look, in the horror genre, that uh, I think maybe works uh, in favor. Uh, and It is the first Scream movie that is not directed by Wes Craven, uh, who passed away in 2015. He directed the first four Scream episodes. Before we talk about it, let's listen in on the returning stars from the original screen, Nev Campbell, Courtney Cox, and David Arquette, as they remember working with Wes Craven. Wes Craven, you always think of him as the king of horror. He is an incredible director, but he's also an incredible human. I might start crying when we start talking about Wes. He was like a father in a lot of ways to all of us. Wes Craven called me to his house. That was our first meeting. He was going to give me notes on the script. And they were all typos. (laughs) 
That was the beauty of Wes Craven. He was such a kind soul. We are fans on a level that is hard to express. He made horror cool. Scary movies somehow take you on a roller coaster ride. Ready, Ed? Action! So when I got the script for the new screen, I was really impressed by Matt and Tyler with how much Wes had had an impression on them. Anything we got right in this movie is because of Wes Craven. Hello? Would you like to play a game, Tara? Sid, it's happening again. I had been apprehensive about doing another one without Wes, but Matt and Tyler really wanted to honor him. It's fun to get into it again. I've done four screams with Wes Craven. I was like, oh wow, what a perfect way to reinvent this movie. They love the original. They want to honor Wes. And it's so scary. How this new cast connects to the legacy cast, that's what's going to make this movie super special. And I was hoping that they were going to dedicate the film to Wes. And they did. Returning stars of Scream, remembering the late Wes Craven. So, uh, Dick, this sounds like a picture that ought to have a pretty good long weekend in mid-January. Yeah, um, it's it's got a background. It's got uh, it's got a high recognition. Uh, it's already tracking uh, well above average. And um, again, we cannot write off this R-rated audience. They're there. They're out there somewhere. And maybe this is the one that will get them back into the movie theaters. Well, this, uh, this I think, is one that has a strong draw. Uh, by the way, the original Scream, which opened December 20th in 1996, uh, it cost about $14 million to make. Uh, it opened to about $6.5 million, and it did $173 million worldwide, which in 1996 was, was you know, substantial gross. So, uh, you know, there are high expectations for the reboot of Scream. I know we will be talking a lot about it in mid-January. And January should end on a very, very strong note. Uh, our friends over at Sony Marvel uh, have yet another uh, picture that sounds like it should do very, very well. I'm talking about the action thriller Morbius, uh, which stars Jared Leto as a biochemist who's trying to cure his own rare blood disorder, and accidentally, he injects himself with a much worse form of vampirism. Let's listen to a quick scene, and uh, we will actually hear Jared Leto talking about uh, making the movie. Morbius is a Marvel character who's been an important part of the universe. He's brilliant. Not a cure. It's finally possible. He's strong. He's got some unique powers, but his powers seem to be out of his control. What's happening? I love the opportunity to do something transformational. I've become something different. It was a very intense physical role. Morbius had his most frail and then most monstrous. This superhero, supervillain, putting a new Marvel character on screen that had never been on screen before. It'll be fun to see where we could go with that. There's a web of opportunity. 
Jared Leto on the making of uh, Morbius. Uh, Dick, this sounds like one that could uh, end January 2022 uh, with a bang. Yeah, thank thank God for Sony. And, uh, you know, Venom uh, started the October onslaught, as I like to call it, back on October 1st. They're ending the year with Spider-Man. Now they're going to end January with Morbius. And, um, you know, would you have said uh, that uh, the savior of exhibition would have been Sony Pictures? Uh, in all honesty, no. I, I, uh, I wouldn't have dared get, try to get away with that idea, but, uh, but I think you're right. And, and it's, it's, it's nice to see um, there are hardworking people over there at Sony who have just put their heads down, made some movies that people wanted to see, and, um, you know, more, more power to them. So we look forward to Morbius. And uh, we look forward to finishing off this holiday season. Yes, and, and, and of course, let's just add to that, of course, that, that Marvel is another integral part of uh, that Sony relationship that it has. And Kevin Feige, who heads Marvel and is a major force in all the creative decisions that are made there, uh, is certainly heavily involved in what they do uh, with Sony as well as what they do uh, with Disney. So, uh, you know, it's all working. And frankly, uh, Listen, exhibitors, I don't think, care where it's coming from as long as it's coming. No, not, uh, not at all. And, uh, you know, uh, let's, let's see more of this in 2022. Well, I'm with you. We will uh, be back next week on Box Office Autopsy to see how the holiday season played out and to kick off the new year with you. So until then, thanks for listening. Time now for our film flashback look at what was happening in Hollywood right around now, way back then. Let's set today's time travel dial for December 24th, 1905. Howard Hughes isn't best remembered for being a movie mogul, but when he was born December 24th, 1905, Hollywood was in his future. The reclusive billionaire inherited his father's machine tool company in 1923 and enjoyed great success in a range of businesses before his death in 1976. He launched Hughes Aircraft in 1932, setting world air speed records himself during the 1930s and 40s. In 1939, he acquired Transworld Airlines, expanding it into a major global carrier. In the 60s and early 70s, Hughes was a prime force in Las Vegas hotels and casinos, turning that small desert town into a world-class resort. Hughes's career in movies didn't bring him the kind of success he achieved in aviation or hotels, but he did direct two hits. The 1930 war drama Hell's Angels, starring Gene Harlow, and the 1943 western The Outlaw, starring Jane Russell. 
In May 1948, he made his big move into Hollywood, taking control of RKO Radio Pictures and RKO Theaters. By purchasing 929,000 shares of stock from Floyd Odlum's Atlas Corp. for $8.8 million. The change in ownership put RKO in a tailspin. By July, production chief Dory Sherry had quit, unable to work with Hughes, who was known for calling employees at 2 or 3 in the morning. Hughes laid off about 75% of RKO's employees and slashed production to cut costs. One of the films he scrapped was the drama The Robe, RKO's most expensive project. It ended up at 20th Century Fox, where, in 1953, it was the first movie released in the widescreen process Cinemascope. The Robe was made on a then-expensive $5 million budget, but it grossed $36 million and was exactly the kind of hit RKO needed. Hughes put RKO on the road to disaster. By January 1957, it stopped making movies. Nonetheless, Hughes profited handsomely from controlling RKO. A 1952 sale of his stock brought him a deposit for a million and a quarter dollars from a Chicago syndicate that soon afterwards was exposed for its racketeering connections. The deal fell apart, but their deposit was forfeited. In 1954, Hughes offered to purchase all outstanding RKO shares for about $23.5 million, which would have let him apply RKO's losses to reduce taxes payable by his profitable businesses. When that offer failed, Hughes sold RKO Radio Pictures for $25 million to General Tire and Rubber, which needed movies to show on TV stations it owned. Although that was the death knell for RKO, Hughes did very well for himself, reportedly enjoying a $6.5 million profit. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another box office autopsy next week. In Hollywood for Screen Dollars, I'm Martin Grove. Thank you.